So as I mentioned, our theme for the day is going to be persecution, with it being that international day of prayer for the persecuted church. So we're going to be talking about persecution, and we're also going to be talking about the appropriate biblical response to persecution. So we're going to look through a bunch of scriptures, maybe open the bulletin up there, and you saw all the passages we're going to look at. We'll take a look at, at scripture and how we should view persecution, what our response ought to be. But before we even get to scripture, I kind of want to sort of speak to the lay of the land in our world with regard to persecution. Sort of what is the state of things currently in, in the world, but then also we'll take a look at sort of our country and, and sort of say, what is, is persecution like in the world now for Christians? What is the state of things? Is it on the rise? Is it, on, in, you know, is it declining? Is it severe? Is it not so severe? We're sort of going to talk all about that so we have a right understanding of our world and where things sort of currently are in relation to persecution, and then we can sort of apply scripture to that situation. So here's some statistics that really give us a sense of what things are like in the world as it pertains to persecution of Christians. And all these statistics, they're not from sort of like sketchy online sources or whatnot. These are all from reputable places and polls and so forth. These are all good and accurate. And in relation to people persecuted all across the globe, 80% of them are Christian. Now, if we think of sort of the population of the world and sort of what percentage of those people are Christians, roughly it's about a third of the world that identifies as Christian. It's usually just sort of like a sliver under that, like 31, 32 percent. But you can sort of approximate it and say about a third of the world is Christian or identifies as such. Doesn't mean they're all true believers in Christ, but, but demographics-wise, they identify as Christian. So you would sort of expect if persecutions kind of evenly spread, different peoples, different races, different religions and whatnot, you sort of expect, well, then about a third of people who face persecution would be Christians, right? That's what you'd expect if it's evenly spread. But the reality is it's not evenly spread, but very clearly Christians are targeted and singled out all across the globe because that number is not a third, but rather it's four out of five. It's 80% of people who experience persecution are Christian. And it's clearly the reality, just I think probably intuitively, intuitively as we just sort of look at the world around us, as we sort of read the news, it seems quite clear that Christians are targeted. You even sort of look at our, our country, it sort of seems like Christians are often singled out and there's a whole different set of rules that seem to apply to Christians and we face persecution, even if in smaller ways nonetheless. It's true in the world that Christians are clearly singled out and intensely persecuted more than any other people group and in a disproportionate way. Uh, to quote a study, research study conducted by the Church of England, these are their findings sort of looking at, at the state of persecution, particularly as it relates to Christians. They say, and this is a quote, evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also its increasing severity. In some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide according to that adopted by the UN. Right, to put it simply, right, if we think of what is the trend, where do things stand and how are things trending, persecution of Christians is on the rise. It's spreading geographically, it's spreading to more places, but it's also becoming more and more and more severe. And in fact, in some places, it's sort of like teetering on the definition, the internationally accepted definition of genocide, right? So this is severe. This is not sort of the minor persecution that probably we might think of, you know, if you think of 
the U.S. and what do we experience? We, we might experience some mocking. Maybe we're belittled for our faith. Uh, I'd say things are slowly starting to ramp up in our country, but nonetheless, we're still rather sheltered from much of the persecution that's going on all across the globe. And it's very severe in some places, again, approaching genocide, sort of teetering on that definition. To give some more statistics, 309 million Christians in the world face high levels of persecution. That, that's one in eight Christians. So this isn't just sort of some teeny little sliver of the global Christian population, a percent or two or 10% or something that sort of face significant, serious, high levels of persecution. No, it's, it's one in eight Christians. It's 309 million Christians. Again, not facing low levels of persecution, but high, very severe levels of persecution. And if you look at, well, again, what's the trend? Is that, is that down from last year? Is that increasing? It's a 19% increase as compared to last year, right? That, that's a huge jump. That's not sort of some small, it's, it's a little bit more this year, but still largely the same. No, that is a hugely increased number, 19% rise in the number of Christians facing high levels of persecution. Again, to give some more statistics that sort of just give us a sense of, of what's going on in the world in regard to Christians and, and persecution of Christians. Uh, in the top 50 countries in regard to persecution, those identified as sort of the, the top 50 places for the persecution of Christians. And this is a lowball number. Don't think this is necessarily like the true accurate number. This is sort of verified cases, okay? 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith in the last year. That's 13 a day. So you could just think of uh, here's Sunday, you know, and just with the passing of one more day, on average, that's another 13 people in the world killed just for being Christians. And again, that's a very conservative statistic. Oftentimes, places where the persecution takes place and where people can be martyred, killed for their faith, it can be out in sort of like more remote villages or in countries that are a little bit maybe more backward in, in the reporting of in the collection of statistics just isn't there. So undoubtedly, the number is higher and, and, and realistically substantially higher, but these are at least bare, bare minimum, 100% verified. These, per, these people were killed. We know it for their faith. That's the number. Okay, just to, again, illustrate the trend in the way things are going in our world, <clears throat> 12 countries in the world now score in the extreme level of persecution. Looking back just seven years ago, there was only one, and it was North Korea. Again, showing that trend. Seven years ago, okay, there was one country, North Korea, in the extreme category for persecution. Now it's, it's 12 countries, hugely on the rise. <clears throat> I want to illustrate, too, I'd say over the last year and a half, as we think of sort of the pandemic and so forth, that has sort of given cause and rise to further in intensification of persecution of Christians. This is just sort of a story uh, from, uh, from Open Doors, just illustrating this point, something they've seen in the world all across the globe that over the last year and a half or so that, that persecution has been on the rise and intensified. And this comes out of India. Uh, in, in India, Open Doors partnered. There's a lot of lockdowns you know, in India, and people weren't able to work as a result. You just weren't able to go to your workplace. People couldn't provide for their families, could, couldn't get food for their families. And so they'd have to go to, to places where you know, they were handing out food, food distribution centers. Uh, and what was happening, Open Doors wound up partnering with, with some Christian organizations in the area. And so they fed a bunch of uh, Indian Christians, actually 100,000 of them. And they took some polls of, of these Indian Christians who were coming to their, to their uh, food distribution centers as they were partnering with these Christian groups in India. And they polled them and they found out that 80% of them had been turned away 
from these other few distribution centers, the non-Christian ones, had been turned away just because they were Christian. So they're Christians here in India. They're hungry. They're starving. They've been uh, prevented from working their jobs so that they can provide for their families. They come up to these you know, food, food distribution centers uh, where they're handing it out to anyone who has need, and then it's perceived, well, you're a Christian, so we're just not going to give you food. We're just going to turn you away and, and leave you to starve to death. Fortunately, then uh, Open Doors stepped in, partnered with other groups, and was able to feed them. But that's just another example of, again, the intense persecution and how just what's gone on the last year or two has just given rise to all, all the greater persecution uh, of Christians in the world. Uh, to give, again, some further statistics, this is just to look at, at one country alone, and it's the country of Nigeria. Often we might think of, of Christians and being persecuted and, and, and killed for their faith or, or locked up in prison. And maybe what comes to mind is we think of, well, North Korea, and, and rightfully so. Or maybe you think of, well, the Muslim world, and, and understandably, rightfully so. Or, or maybe you think of China and so forth. But probably you don't think of Nigeria. It's a country that's, that's about half Christian, but it's also about half Muslim. It's sort of roughly a 50-50 split. And over just the past number of years, since 2015, so this isn't some sort of long span of time, decades upon decades, just since 2015, over 43,000 Christians have been killed by radical extremist Muslims in that country alone. Again, just looking at one country, Nigeria, that's it. Forget about all of the others. That many Christians have been killed. Uh, it's just sort of, if you sort of stay tuned into international news or Christian news, Voice of the Martyrs, you'll hear the reports, but it's sort of time after time, Muslims come in, they, they raid this Christian village, and they literally just, they butcher everyone who's there, unarmed, men, women, children, they, they torch the whole place, or they do this to churches, and the, the governing authorities really do nothing. They, they sort of officially condemn it, oh, this is a terrible act, but then nothing really happens, and it just goes on time and time and time again, and it's just sort of tragic tragically mainstream in parts of Nigeria, where sort of the Christian part and the Muslim part kind of come together. It's right in that sort of middle region, and it's just sort of part of daily life, tragically. Uh, and again, sort of nobody seems to really want to do anything about it, and this is the reality of, of the world we live in. Uh, it's not like we should think of the world today and say, oh, surely persecution of Christians doesn't happen today. That was from days long ago. That was, that was the early church and the Roman Empire way, way back in the day. And certainly there was truth to the fact that that was happening then. But, but it's happening today, and it's on the rise and, and rapidly on the rise. And we need to be aware of that fact. And even to sort of take a look at our country, because again, you could look at a lot of this and say, well, you know, that's Nigeria or that's India. You know, you mentioned those stories, Steve, but those are other countries. Or you talked about the Muslim world or, or North Korea or China. And again, not the U.S., but I'd say it is on the rise in our country. That, that, that's sort of the reality. I don't mean people are being killed out in the streets for being Christians. But, but it's, it's no longer just sort of staying confined to, well, we're kind of mocked by the media and others. Oh, there are those Christians. They're ridiculous. They believe in, in, in the Bible and creation and Noah and his ark and all that stuff. And, 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 you know, they don't accept homosexuality or transgender stuff or all of that stuff. Yeah, we're, we're used to sort of being mocked and belittled and so forth. But, but it's really intensifying and growing. Uh, more and more, even people's livelihood, their jobs are being put at risk, whether it's now, not that this is recent news, but it's something that has been sort of uh, growing, even if it's a few years old, but whether it's Christian bakers and, you know, someone who's gay comes to them and we want you to bake a cake and it's going to be rainbows everywhere and celebrating homosexuality. And they nicely but politely just sort of say, you know, in good conscience, I can't make that. There are 
20 other bakeries within a 10-minute distance that you could go to, and they do that, but in good conscience, it just goes contrary to what I believe, and, and they wind up getting sued, and, and their whole livelihood, they lose their bakery, they lose it all, and, and it's just poof, gone. Why? Just because they, they want to stand on, upon their, faithfully, upon their, their biblical faith, and, and views that, in honesty, have been mainstream in Western culture or the whole world for generations upon generations upon generations, right? And that's sort of where our country's starting to go, but it's even intensifying more than just sort of bakers. But there are cases of nurses who've been pressured into, hey, you either need to assist in this abortion or hand out these drugs at this hospital to, that will cause an abortion or else you're going to lose your job. And they should legally be given a religious exemption, but hospitals are just saying now more and more, nope, sorry, that's not the case. If you won't help in this, then, then you're fired. And, and nurses have lost their jobs as a result just for saying, I believe that that unborn baby in the womb is indeed an unborn baby and, and is a human life. And I'm not going to have a role in taking that life. And for that alone, they're, they're losing their jobs. Or I think of the case of um, a couple brothers who were, were just starting this HGTV show. It was one of, you know, the, those popular fixer-upper kind of shows. They're all over the place now. Uh, and they had made some deal with HGTV. They were going to have this great show. And all of a sudden, the information comes out that, oh, they oppose homosexuality. And suddenly, you know, sort of the, the pro-homosexuality people are, are lobbying for them to be fired and, and lose their job. And, and ultimately, that's what wound up happening. They caved to that. The, the company did. And they canceled the show. We live in sort of this growing cancel culture where if you don't sort of fall in line with the, the godless secular uh, progressive movement, then, then you have no place in society. You can't have a show on TV, even while other people might have their shows on TV who've done horrible things, but they can have their show, but you just believe in a biblical view of marriage and sexuality, and suddenly you, you're canceled. You can't have a show about fixing up houses, you know, and that's just more and more where our world is going. I think of another case of a doctor, this is pretty recently, uh, who was a public health director in a city, and suddenly someone found out that, that uh, in his private time, he also serves as a lay preacher at his church. And they sort of listen to some of the sermons. And again, it's, it, it's what would be normal biblical faith. And the city deemed that's unacceptable. We don't like these Christian views. And so even though in regard to his actual job, he did it with, with excellence and carried out faithfully and had all of the qualifications, had been in that position for years and years and years. Now, because it comes out he's a Christian and actually believes those things in the Bible, suddenly he's fired from that position and can no longer hold it. Uh, and so that's more and more sort of what, what's happening in our country. And so even if we think of the most severe stuff where people are, are dying, they're being beaten, thrown into prison, yes, you might look at that and say that, that's elsewhere, but it's slowly, ever so slowly increasing here and headed in that direction where, again, more and more in our country, those in charge, people in positions of power saying Christians have no place in this society. You can sort of stay on the fringes and, and sort of rot away, but you're not going to get a job in our country. You're not going to be able to participate in society in every way. Uh, and, and, and that's sort of where our country is headed. So sort of now having laid out the situation in which we now stand, looking at the whole globe, looking at our country as well, now we want to say, well, what does Scripture say to all of this? And so we're going to turn first to the Gospel of John. And this is chapter 15, and we'll read verses 18 through 21. And here Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking to his disciples, and here's what he says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. 
As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Put simply, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you and persecutes you and mistreats you in every way, right? That, that, hey, that's what they've done to me, and you're going to be my followers. Expect them to do the same to you. You shouldn't be shocked by it. You shouldn't be scratching your heads. Why is this happening? I'm sort of baffled by this, but rather we should almost expect it. It's sort of, hey, if we're not really, even though we're in the world, we're not of the world. That's what Jesus says here, right? He says, I have chosen you out of the world. We're no longer of the world, even though we're in it, right? We can't expect the world to sort of love us as its own he says right the world loves worldliness the world evil world loves evil but but now that's not the way we are anymore since we came to faith in christ we're a new creation in him we've been taken at, right we, we are no longer of this world we have been chosen out of the world as jesus said we are no longer worldly and so the world says we don't like you we don't like what you believe in we don't like what you have to do with and just as the world hated christ and and and, and persecuted him Right? and treated him poorly to the point of crucifying him, he says, expect the same treatment as my followers. Don't be shocked when people hate you. That, that's what you can expect as a follower of mine. And so, in a sense, a first response as we think of persecution, whether it's in the world, in other countries, or whether we think of our country here, is sort of, we shouldn't be shocked by it. We, it's easy for us sort of in America to sort of think of, well, this is a country that was founded upon, upon biblical values and so forth, and sort of to, to be a little bit awestruck that this is the way our country is heading. But I would say the reality is the fact that our country was rooted in Christian values and sort of stood firm in that for so long, that was actually the shocking thing. That was a wonderful thing, a wonderful reality, but sort of the normal expectation should be the world to, to hate Christians. And so that was sort of the, the little exception to the rule in a sense. That was in a sense what was aberrant in a wonderful way, but sort of what we ought to expect as Christians is, no, the, the world's going to hate us. They're going to mistreat us. They're going to persecute us. That's just the way it is. And so that doesn't mean that we suddenly love it, and it's like, oh, I love a good beating. That's just so wonderful, and, you know, I want to be put to death, and that sounds great, but, but we shouldn't be shocked by it. It shouldn't come as some great surprise. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, when you basically reject the ways of the world and say, I'm going to live in a godly way, the world's going to say, yeah, I don't like that. So we're not going to like you and we're going to persecute you. Right? That's sort of what we should expect. So that's our, our sort of first takeaways in regard to our response. Let's not be shocked by it. That doesn't mean we look at it and say, this is wonderful, no big deal. Let's not do anything about it. But, but we should not be surprised when persecution comes our way or when we see it in the world. It's just sort of what the church ought to expect. Now, speaking further to our response, I want to read from James, book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And here's what James writes. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But that sort of goes contrary to what might seem like a natural way of thinking, a sort of worldly way of thinking of, you know, why should I consider it pure joy 
when I face trials. I want things to be good and comfortable and easy. You know, when I think of facing trials, I don't think of, oh, yeah, tough times. That's just, my soul loves that, and I just rejoice in tough things coming my way. But James says, no, we really ought to have that sort of what might seem like a bizarre way of thinking, but nonetheless, it is the right, the right way of thinking and a biblical way of thinking that when we face trials of, of any sort, but certainly persecution would be one sort of trial, when we face that, we ought to consider it pure joy. And why? Because he says, ultimately, the result is, right, God winds up using that in our lives to grow us and mature us in the faith, to draw us closer to him, to, to mold us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so uh, we ought to look at this and say, yeah, not, not that I like hardships and trials and so forth intrinsically in and of themselves, but recognizing what God's going to do in this and through this, how he's going to draw me closer to himself, how he's going to, to mature me in the faith. I should perceive these trials. I, I should respond to them as though it's a, a joy. It's a blessing. God is going to use this and work it for good in my life to, to grow me spiritually and draw me closer to him. So I can look at these trials. I can look at any sort of persecution I'm facing and, and, and respond to it with joy, knowing that God's going to use it in that way in my life. Furthermore, we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul writing says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And the word for, for granted here is, uh, the root of the word is, is the same word for, for grace. Really, a, a good way of translating it is, it has been given to you as a gracious gift, right, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And we might look at that and say, sure, it sounds like a, a wonderful, gracious gift given to us to believe in him. But then we might look at that and say, but also to suffer for him. Again, our natural way of thinking isn't, oh, suffering. That's such a wonderful, gracious gift. I just love suffering. It's so wonderful. But again, Paul says that that is the mindset we ought to have. And again, we have to sort of understand what Paul is thinking about here, what he's saying. And to understand it in this way, in a sense of what a joy and an honor and a privilege to suffer for the one who suffered immeasurably for me. To think of Christ and he in wondrous love was willing to suffer unimaginably hanging on that cross for me. And I count it a privilege and an honor to be able to suffer in turn for him. I count it a joy and a blessing and a privilege to show my faithfulness and my devotion, my dedication to him by being willing to suffer whatever it might be in service to him. And so to count that a joy, to count it a privilege, to say, Christ, you suffered for me, and I'll consider it an honor and a joy and a privilege to show my faithfulness and love and devotion to you by suffering for you just as you did for me. And we ought to have that mindset, not just to, to look at, at trials, to look at persecution in our life and say, oh, what a miserable thing. I think it's sort of our Western world, our, our immediate uh, thought process and inclination when we come to any sort of difficulty in life is sort of, how can I get out of it? That, that's sort of our number one thing is, this is bad, I want to get out of that. Rather than saying, yeah, these might be trials, they might be hardships, but God can use them and, and work them for good in my life and, and mature me and grow me in the faith. And again, I can look at these trials and hardships and suffering for Christ and, and look at it as, as a blessing and an honor to be able to suffer for the one who suffered immeasurably more for me. And I can count that a joy and a privilege and an honor to show my love and devotion in that way. Thinking further of an appropriate biblical response, I want us to turn to Romans now. Chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. And here's what it says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Then it goes on. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Weep with those who weep. And I want to focus first on, on verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's all too easy to be persecuted and our sort of gut reaction is like, I hope they get what they deserve. You know, they did this terrible thing to me or someone I care about, I, I love, and I just hope that they really get it, that they get what they deserve. But that shouldn't, that sort of vindictive, vengeful mindset, that hateful mindset shouldn't be our response. But rather we should recognize there's still human beings created in the image of God and and we're called to love them even as they treat us in terrible ways and persecute us we're called to still love and that should be our response just to continue to love them to want the best for them to bless them to to pray for them rather than to say man i just hate you for what you've done and i hope you really get it right so that's part of what our response needs to be as we face persecution just to bless those who persecute us to pray for them to keep on loving them and treating them well and wanting the best for them but then we continue on in, in the passage we just read, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And as we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the globe who face all sorts of hardships and persecution just for being Christians, right? And we think of, you know, perhaps there, there's so many out there who've lost a loved one and they're just mourning over that. That person died, maybe, you know, a pastor who is faithful to God's calling and, and, and proclaimed the gospel faithfully. And what happened? He was killed because of what he did. And now you have that family, whether it's literally biological family or even the whole church family, and they're just mourning the loss of this, this dear loved one. And, and what we're being told here is we ought to empathize with them and feel their pain, right? We ought to, yes, rejoice with those who rejoice, but also weep with those who weep. And so as we see our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, as they mourn over all, of the, the, all that, they're, that they're enduring, our response should be to feel their pain, to empathize with them and mourn with them. And yes, as wonderful things happen to them as well, as they're rejoicing, we ought to rejoice with them as well. And we read sort of the same thing in 1 Corinthians, our next passage, chapter 12, verse 26. Here Paul's talking about the, the, the body of Christ, the church, but he's sort of also using the very physical, literal body as sort of as an imagery, as imagery for that, as a metaphor for that. And he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it, right? Just as if you have a, a human body, or you could talk about any animal, any sort of physical body, if, if one part of that body is hurt and suffers, it impacts the whole body, not just sort of that one part. The whole body is impacted by it, the whole person. And he's saying it should be the same way with the church when one part of that church, that body of Christ suffers, right, it should impact the whole body. The whole body should suffer with that one member of the body, should feel that person's pain and hurt with them and weep with them and mourn with them, right? And again, on the flip side, when there's cause for rejoicing and celebration, the whole body ought to celebrate what that one person and rejoice in what that one person is rejoicing in as well. Right, so as we think of our response to persecution, as we realize even if things are ramping up in the U.S., we have it pretty good relative to our brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere. As we see their intense suffering at the hands of others who are persecuting them, our response should be that, that we want to feel their pain. We want to empathize with them. We, it, it's too easy to sort of let the distance sort of... Uh, in a sense, prevent us from sort of feeling their pain. That's sort of far away. That's way over there. Yeah, we're aware of it. We read stories about it, but it's too easy to sort of put it out of mind and not sort of put ourselves in their shoes and sort of feel what they're feeling. But we need to. We need to remember them. We need to be aware of what's going on, and we need to feel our brothers' and sisters' pain as they suffer for being followers of Christ. I also want us to read here Hebrews chapter 13, 
verse 3, and it says, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. And here, what's in mind, we should remember all in prison, but certainly what's specifically being talked about here is Christians who are in prison for no reason other than following Christ. That's certainly what the author of Hebrews here has in mind. He's, he's not talking about people who've committed legitimate crimes and now they're in prison as a result. Not that we should forget about those people and, and not care about them, but that's not what he's really speaking to at this, at this moment. He's recognizing the reality of persecution that there are Christians out there who are just being tossed into prison for no reason, no justifiable reason. They're just followers of Christ, and that's it. And he's saying, don't forget about them. It's too easily sort of like out of sight, out of mind. Uh, life just sort of happens. You just sort of forget about those people. And he's saying that that shouldn't be our response. We need to remember them. Remember those in prison. And again, with that sort of uh, empathy, as though you were in prison with them. And the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Again, we need to empathize with our brothers and sisters in Christ and not forget about them. But I want to read for us one last verse because it's awfully significant. We can talk about, as we talk about our response to persecution and remembering our brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing this, this intense persecution. Uh, and certainly we want to empathize with them. But ultimately, if we really love them, if we're really remembering them, if we're sort of empathizing with them, we're feeling their hurt and their suffering and their pain. If we really love them, it ought to motivate us then to act on their behalf. Not just sort of to say, oh, I really feel for you. But I'm not going to do anything about it. I'll just sort of go about my life. But no, it ought to motivate us to act. And that's what John's writing about here in 1 John 3, 18. He says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech. I mean, it's good to say it, but it sort of, it needs to go further than that. If we really love someone, it's going to go further than just words. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth, right? If you really love someone, true love will, will overflow with action. It doesn't just sort of stay on the inside in our heart and our soul, but no, it will overflow with actions, loving actions on behalf of the one we love. And so if we're really going to love our brothers and sisters in Christ all across the globe as we ought to, if we're going to remember them, not sort of forget about them, hey, they're way over there. I got a busy life here in Westboro, surrounding towns. I got stuff going on here. I just sort of, I don't have the time to keep them on my mind. No, we, we can't have that mindset. We need to say, we've got to remember them. We, we've got to love them. We got to feel their pain. We have to be aware of what's going on. And as they're hurting, we need to, to hurt with them. Right? But then we need to recognize it's got to lead to action. We can't just sort of have a day here, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, where, hey, we get to talk about this and the reality of persecution and sort of feel for our dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we sort of feel good that we thought of them and remember them. And we took a little time today to, to pray for them and so forth. And then it's just, again, sort of let's forget about it onto our lives. But no, if we really love them, we're going to keep them on our hearts, on our minds, and then we're going to act on their behalf. And I want to talk specifically about, well, how can we act on behalf of, uh, of the persecuted church all across the globe? Sort of what, what practically can we do? Because you might be thinking, you know, I, I don't forget about them and I do care about them and I do love them. And I, I do sort of hurt when, when I hear about all that they're suffering and all the pain that they're enduring. But I just I don't know what to do. I'm way over here in America. They're way over in, you know, insert country name, India, North Korea, wherever. I just sort of feel helpless. I, I don't know what to do. And I, I think of, first of all, the video that we watched. And again, what was the number one request? It wasn't for money or tangible things. The number one request was, I just want people to pray for me. I want my brothers and sisters in Christ in America, Europe, you name the place. I just want them lifting me up in prayer. That's what I desperately need and need most. That is what the persecuted church is saying. And that is something we in love ought to go and do. That's one of the actions in love we should be carrying out on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. We need 
to be praying for them. We need to be praying for, for strength and perseverance for them as they just face hardships day after day, as they're maybe tossed in prison, as perhaps, you know, we talked about in India, they can't even get food. They're being turned away from, from all these food dispensary stations, and, and they can't even get food, and they're wondering, how am I going to provide for my family and so forth? Day in, day out, we just need to be lifting them up in prayer for, for faithfulness, for for perseverance through all of it, for strength, courage, boldness. In the face of, of, of such adversity, such persecution too, it can be all too easy to sort of shrink back from that and say, I'm just going to like keep my Christian thing to myself. Because if I just, if I live that out publicly, then I'm just going to receive all the more intense persecution. We need to pray for boldness for people to be living out their faith boldly, even in spite of the fierce persecution, that they would be bold in their witness for Christ, sharing with others day after day, that God would then move through that and work through that and build up his church. As I talked about uh, in our time of prayer earlier, it, it is often in those times, if you just look historically at the life of the church, it has often been the case that it's sort of counterintuitive to, to what we might think and expect. We think, well, when things are cozy and easy, the church will seem to do well. And suddenly when the church is persecuted, you think that's hardship that would sort of affect the church and its growth and it would shrink. But often what you see is, is quite the opposite. And even in those times of intense persecution, the church has just thrived historically, right? Oftentimes sort of the nominal Christians, they fade away. They're not going to face persecution when they're not really in it for real. And then you have the, this, this real mature body of believers really powerfully living out their lives in service to the Lord, bearing witness to him. And people can't help but take note and, and see the difference. And, and people come to faith and oftentimes in, in large numbers. And so as we're praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for, for their perseverance, that, that they would, God would just see them through this tough time. And, and as we pray for their bold witness for Christ, we also want to pray that God would just use it and work through it and build up his church and, and build up his kingdom in those places as well. We want to pray for an alleviation of the suffering that they're enduring. That's something that should be on our minds and our prayers is, recognizing all that they're going through, whether we talk about Nigeria and this, the awful statistics there for Christians being killed by radical Muslims just for being Christian and to see that suffering, whether it's those who've lost their lives, but then thinking about the families they've left behind and the hurt and the suffering there as a result and, and just pray that God would alleviate that suffering as well. We should be praying for them in every way. We should even be praying for ourselves, recognizing, hey, Lord, it's, it's easy for me to, to lose sight of 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 the persecuted church in other parts and, and give me a faithfulness in my role. I need to be daily lifting them up in prayer. And, and I know that I too easily forget. So Lord, just keep that on my mind and my heart and give me that faithfulness and continuing to lift them up in prayer to you. And so first and foremost, as we think of what can we do, right? If we're talking about actions, yet we need to, if we really have love for them and we're going to remember them and, and empathize with them, we need to remember that ultimately in that love, we need to act. And, and that most important thing we can do is just come before the Lord in prayer on their behalf. But there are other things that we can do as well. And one of them is financial help. Even just sort of thinking of, of the example I used of India and those who were turned away for food and open doors just sort of stepped in and said, hey, we'll help out. And, and they partner with Christian organizations there. Well, how can they do that without financial resources? How can they feed 100,000 Indians who, Indian Christians who need food are being turned away everywhere else? Uh, how can they do that if they don't have financial support from Christians who say, hey, I have a heart for the persecuted church, and, and I want to support one of these ministries that's ministering to them and is there for them and supporting them. And so we can support the, the persecuted church and lovingly act on their behalf by financially supporting organizations like Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors. There are others that, that have a heart for the persecuted church and are there day after day just supporting them. 
Also, we can support them through advocacy. The reality is that all too often people are just even unaware of all of those realities, all the statistics here that I just sort of rattled off at the beginning of, of the sermon about whether it's Nigeria or India. Oftentimes people are unaware. Certainly non-Christians, they're probably totally tuned out to what's happening to Christians across the globe. It's sort of not on their minds. They're, they're not aware of it. But even within the church, most would think, just to use the example of Nigeria, of sort of like, yeah, I know this sort of some persecution out there. I've sort of read about it a little bit here or there. I've caught a little bit of wind of it. But again, they probably think that, yeah, that was still more of like the early church, what they experienced. You know, the world's different today. Certainly there, there can't be persecution in a significant way. It's just sort of a rare event here or there. And probably that's like in just a few places like the Muslim world or North Korea, maybe they'd add China to the list. Totally unaware of the fact that there are other places like Nigeria that are like way up there on the list. And, and thousands are dying year after year in just one place. And oftentimes people just aren't even aware. And if they're not aware, they're not going to be involved in sort of solving the problem. And so one of the things we can do is just spread the word, spread the word to all who, who may not be aware, but also I think of in particular political advocacy. The, the reality is the U.S. has quite a bit of pull and power, whether that's sort of through potential economic sanctions or whatnot. We're sort of a big deal in the world. I don't say that in like a pat us on the back sort of way, but it's the reality. And we can exert political pressure with all sorts of countries and sort of get them to bend a little bit to what we want them to do. And if the U.S. really cared about, again, to use the example of Nigeria, 43,000 plus Christians being killed for their faith, if they cared about that, they could put political pressure on Nigeria. The government there, the president there, he's Muslim. He doesn't seem to care or do anything, and that maybe isn't some great surprise. But if the U.S. said, we're going to put pressure on the government there, and maybe there are going to be some economic sanctions, if you guys don't do anything about this, suddenly they'll start caring and they'll start doing something about it. But is our government going to care if we, the voters, aren't out there saying, we care about this, and we're not going to be voting for you so much if you don't care about things that are important to us, right? They're not going to care until suddenly their, their voting base, their constituents make it known, hey, this is something that matters to me and you need to push for. Not that that's a guarantee that they're going to get behind whatever you're pushing and so forth, but we, you know, they're not going to do anything if we don't try. And so we need to get out there and advocate on their behalf and put pressure. Just to use an example of a, a successful instance of this, I think of Andrew Brunson, who's that pastor in Turkey who'd been in prison for quite a long time. And eventually, through political advocacy, people making their voices heard, Christians here putting pressure on politicians in the U.S., who then in turn put pressure on Turkey, ultimately he did wind up getting released and coming back to the U.S. And so there are success stories. Again, we just have to be out there and advocating for it. Uh, so that's another way we can act on their behalf. Uh, also, we can just provide encouragement. You, you sort of try to put yourself in, in the shoes of someone who day after day after day faces persecution. And you can imagine just sort of feeling like every day I, I just get up and I go out there into the world and I just feel like I just get beaten up in every way, maybe physically, but I even mean just sort of in life. It's like I'm out there trying to provide for my family, but no one will hire me because I'm a Christian, right? And they treat me poorly. And my life is on the line day after day after day just because I follow Christ. Or maybe you're tossed in prison and you've been there for a year in, in solitary confinement. And there's no light, no sound, no nothing. And it's like you can barely even like keep your wits about you and stay sane. And it's easy to sort of get down and get depressed. And, and, and often what is just needed in those times is just a word of encouragement. 
you know, Christ is there for you. God is there with you, right? Lean upon him. We're here, even in some far off country, we're here. We're thinking about you. We're praying for you. We're encouraged by your continued faithfulness, you know, to the Lord. And just to provide that word of encouragement in a difficult time. And there are certainly all sorts of ways in which you, you can do that. Uh, I'll be a little bit specific in, in, in one way, and this is sort of relative to, to a, a, a ministry that we're actually in ministry event we're going to be having coming up in a couple months. Uh, the missions committee is going to be putting on in January um, a workshop on sort of how to write letters to people who are in prison. And they're going to do it sort of from a, a wide perspective, it, it, but, but part of it will be targeting those who are persecuted for their faith, uh, those who are tossed into prisons, I use the example of Andrew Brunson. I know he's not in prison anymore, but to use that as an example, here's a pastor just faithfully following the Lord, tossed in prison. Uh, you know, that can be a, a pretty dark place to be, you know, and I don't mean just in a literal sense, but sort of emotionally as well and spiritually. And just to have letters that can be received. I know they don't always make it through into prisons and so forth, but sometimes they do make it through and people are able to read it and be encouraged by it. And, and so this will be a workshop on sort of how can you do that for, for persecuted Christians who have been locked away and they just need that encouraging word that someone on the outside still thinks about them and cares about them and is praying for them and sort of how you can do that. But also it'll be in a wider sense of uh, even non-believers in our country who are in prison and they've done something bad and now they're in prison, but how can we bring the gospel message to them by writing to them and communicating or, or even Christians who maybe, again, they've done something wrong, you know, it doesn't mean they're not repentant over it, but they did something wrong, they're in prison now, how can we be encouraging them in that, in that as well, in that situation? So it'll be a little bit of a wider scope, but if we're thinking of practically how can I act well, we can encourage believers who are going through a tough time. And if you want to think of very practically, what can you do? Well, in a couple months, we haven't picked a specific date in January, but we're going to have that workshop that's all about that, writing to incarcerated people and, and show up for that, right? And, and learn, how can I write an effective letter that'll be encouraging to, to fellow believers who are facing persecution? That's one of the things you can do. Show up to that workshop, learn, and then start doing it. Say, I just, I just want to bring a word of encouragement to people who need to hear it. But, but bottom line is I think of sort of what's our, our big takeaway here. And I want it to be this, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, a few tiers or levels to this application here. But first of all, as we talked about, don't be shocked by it. I think oftentimes as Christians in America, we seem shocked by, by persecution just because in sort of, you know, the history of our country, that has seemed not to be a thing. But again, that was sort of what was unusual. Historically, Christians, faithful believers have faced persecution really throughout much of the history of the church. And we ought to expect that. We shouldn't be shocked by it. And then as we think further, what should our response be? It shouldn't be that, that immediate response of sort of like, what a miserable thing, you know, and, and just... Uh, you know, I, I can't possibly count anything in my life now a joy. This is just beating me up, this persecution. But no, we should look to it and say, I can look to this per persecution that I'm facing and recognize this can be a blessing from the Lord. And I ought to count it a joy because God's going to use this in my life uh, to grow me, to mature me in the faith. And again, I can count it an, an honor and a privilege and a joy to suffer for the one who suffered immeasurably more for him, uh, for me. And so, again, not to have that mindset of persecution, oh, so terrible and miserable, and it is in a sense, but still to have that different frame of mind that says, but I can count it a joy as well. And then to take it a step further, too, to recognize that there are people out there, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who face real severe persecution, far more than we'll experience here, at least in any time soon. Um, and to remember them, not to forget about them. It's so easy to just 
say they're so far away, you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind, but to remember them, to really empathize with them, to feel their pain, and in love to then go and act. And I want that to be really the big takeaways. We need to act. And the major ways we can act, as we talked about, are through prayer, financial help, advocacy, and a word of encouragement. And I just want to challenge each and every one of us sometime this week, or even if it's next week, that, that, that's fine. But in some sort of specific way, challenge yourself to do at least one of these things. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's the financial help, giving money to Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, some other group. Maybe it's some sort of advocacy, or maybe it's saying, I'll do that workshop about writing letters, and I'll write some letters to persecuted Christians in prison. Whatever it is, even if it's just picking one, it's great if you can do all all the ones we talked about, but even if it's just picking one, say, I'm going to do that this week or next week, and, and hopefully it'll continue on beyond that. Challenge yourself to really faithfully live it out in service to ultimately the Lord, because it's what he's calling us to, but also for the sake of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, Persecution is indeed a reality that Christians face day after day. We have been a bit insulated from it, separated from it here in the U.S., where we've had it quite easy. Even if things are ramping up a bit, it's still pretty easygoing here, if we're honest. But for many of our brothers and sisters in the faith, persecution in severe ways, risk of real physical harm, even death, um, all sorts of other hardships, inabilities to get jobs and education and, and, and just persecution on every level, Lord. That's just a part of daily life. And yet they're willing to suffer that for you. And may that be a great encouragement to us to just serve you faithfully and, and be willing to suffer anything for you as well in our lives, Lord. But certainly may we not forget our brothers and sisters in Christ who face these great hardships and this great persecution day after day. May we remember them. May they be on our hearts, on our minds daily, in our prayers daily. And in love, may we be motivated to act. It's too easy to have just one day and we sort of think about them and say, oh, that's too bad. And then we just move on. That's the reality. We all know that that's, that can be all too true at times. But I pray that that wouldn't be the case for us today, that, that this would stick with us, that we wouldn't forget about them, and we would be truly motivated to act. Holy Spirit, bring that work within our hearts. Give us that, that, that profound love for them, that burning passion and desire just to, to serve our dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the persecuted church, and act in love for them just by praying for them, by advocating for them, by helping them financially when they need that help, and just encouraging them day after day. And may you use it, Lord. And in these places where persecution is severe, Lord, we pray that they just remain faithful. That they would be bold witnesses for you, whatever the cost. And that your church would grow and thrive. That your kingdom would move forward and that you would be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.